You're listening to Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Joey as he guides us through the world and major works of Kabbalah, Hasidic masters, and Jewish philosophy, shedding light on the inner life of the soul. Okay, so Be'ezras Hashem, tonight we're going to be continuing with our series of Shirim on the light of the Zohar HaKadosh. And what we're going to be focusing on tonight, Be'ezras Hashem, is going to be the language of the Zohar. Namely, the fact that the Zohar is written in Arami, and Aramaic, with a particular emphasis on the nature of Targum being the singular vehicle through which the light of the Zohar is revealed. Now, everything that we've spoken about until now, in terms of the light of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and the framework of the book of the Zohar, both of which helped us understand that the light of the Zohar is not what we typically assume it to be. We typically assume that the Zohar is this book of supernal spirituality of a transcendent form, which is above and beyond Tairus HaNigla, above and beyond what Chazal have to tell us, what the Gemara has to tell us. And only those who have merited to fill their stomachs with shas and poskim are worthy of entering into this sacred orchard, which is the Zohar HaKadosh. And this is backed up by certain singular threads within the poskim who said that it was important for certain individuals to wait before learning Panimiya Satora, the Zohar itself being included within it. And to collect it all together and to tie it up into a neat package, the general notion of that one who studies the inner teachings of Torah, one who studies the Zohar HaKadosh, stands at the risk of losing their minds, of, of going insane, of finding madness in their world. And usually the source text brought for that is Ben Azai, and the fact that Ben Azai, when he was Eulet to the Pardes, he was Hatzitz Vinifka, he looked a little bit too far and he went mad. And so all of these notions associated with the danger or the secrecy of Panimiya Satora, in particular the Zohar, create a certain sense of a threat of madness that emerges out of studying this book too closely. And Refroman Tzfusi like we spoke about last week, one of the Sari HaZohar, says in a very beautiful way, he says, in truth, it's right. In truth, it's very, it's very correct that one who studies the Zohar finds madness in their lives, that one who studies the Zohar runs the risk of entering into that pit of shiga'on, of madness. Very much like Rabbi Nachman tells us, that there will come a time in the world where everybody will be mad, but there will be those unique few who understood that the wheat that they were eating was tainted and that they were aware that they had lost their minds. And it's that awareness of our madness that gives us a hope towards Geula. Because when the entire world is operating a certain way, when the entire world is shikr b'chitsoinius, like Rav Kook tells us, so then those who have tasted the depths, those who have plumbed the depths, who have broken open the surface to peer beneath and see that there is a, a world burgeoning beneath, bubbling beneath what we typically assume to be the depth of the Torah, so a person's heart and their mind is filled with possibility. It's filled with excitement. It's filled with the anticipation that we've spoken about that Rashbi and his Hevra experienced, rousing themselves in the heart of nighttime to explore the unexplored area of nocturnal reality, to go into the darkness where things were not clear anymore, no longer just traversing the roads at daytime where things were revealed and it was clear what one thing was versus what another thing was. Rashbi and his Chavraya wanted to descend out into the darkness of the world, into the confusion of the world, and into the Sibuchim of the world, these overgrowths of the world that seem to cover over the true reality of things. And that maddening space where a human being is forced to relinquish their control of intellectual, logical understanding is the very site where Rabbi Shimon and his Chavra 
would discern the secrets of Torah. So in truth, the Zohar HaKadosh opens up that place of madness for us. It forces us into that nighttime of ourselves where we are forced to come and question the truths that we assume to be absolutely true and to ultimately live with the sense that a lot of our questions simply cannot be answered. And for someone who is not prepared to live with unanswered questions, that demand, that drive, that idolatrous impulse that seeks out absolute knowledge and answers to everything will lose its mind when it encounters the world of Torah that lives in the question itself. If Chazal in the Gemara, they celebrate questioning to a profound ideal, but there's still a promise, a redemptive promise that Tishbi Yavo v'yataritz kushus v'abayos, that Eliyahu and Navi will come as the harbinger of Mashiach and all unanswered questions will be answered. And so that even though Torah Sanigla, in all of its intensity and all of its wondrous pathways that enable a human being to live with questions, with doubt, with the recognition of the fallibility of human logic, right? The first encounter that a Jewish person has very often with Torah Shabal Peh is in Eilam Metziah Shaloi, the first parak in Bava Metziah, where you have two individuals lying, lying about a talus. One person found the talus, says it's theirs. Another person finds the talus and says it's theirs. Both are grabbing hold of it, claiming that it's theirs. And clearly somebody is unconsciously or consciously not telling the truth here. And the first encounter that a Jewish person has with the world of Tarish of Peh, with that supernal world of Gemara, is the encounter with a world of falsehood, with an Alma de Shikra, with truth claims being thrown into shade by another person's attack on one person's veracity or honesty. And we find this throughout Shas. We find that Shas propels a person, Chazal propel a person into a state of questioning and bewilderment and feeling lost and having more questions than answers and valuing the process of Shakla Bataria and the Havamina and the possible answers that don't survive the rigorous test of honesty. But nevertheless, the impulse behind Gemara which is from a lashon of Gomer, of Gemira, of finishing, of completing something, is that there will eventually be an answer. Tishbi yavo v'yataritz kushos v'abayos. But in the Zohar HaKadosh, you don't find such a demand for an answer. In the Zohar, you can have the Chavraya, each and every one of the Chavraya, interpreting a pasuk, interpreting a verse in a different way, according to the own hermeneutical principles that rest at the heart of that specific Tana, as we'll see in the Shir on the Chavraya, on the holy fraternity, on the group of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his Tamidim. But in spite of the fact that everybody is offering a, a different voice or a different interpretation with regards to a verse, you don't find there a need for settling which is true and which is not true. Because the book of the Zohar is not a book of truth necessarily. It's a book that supersedes truth. It's a book that's coming to answer up the question of the angels of truth. Like Chazal tell us that the Malachi Shalom, the angels of peace, and the Malachi Emes, and the angels of truth, got into an argument prior to the creation of the world. And the argument was, why in the world, God, would you create human beings? Shalom said you should create them because in truth, they can reconcile with one another in spite of their differences. And MS says, please don't create them because they're going to lie. They're going to live lives of falsehood, and they're going to be created in a world of lies. And the malachim who are capable of living according to that very strict measure of truth, like we spoke about, because they're infallible, they don't fail, and therefore they don't know what falsehood means, they don't know what confusion means. And these malachi emes wanted to convince HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so to speak, not to create human beings. And famously, what HaKadosh Baruch Hu does is he took emes, he took those malachim of emes, and he silenced them, and he took the concept of truth, and he threw it down onto the earth, and it shattered into a million pieces. As the Pasuk says, Eretz, uh, emes me Eretz titzmach, that eventually truth will grow forth from within this world itself. Meaning to say that not only will truth not be a reason not to create human beings, but rather the true truth, or the emes la amiso, as Rabbi Nachman describes, will emerge specifically from within the Amban the Shikra that the true value of what truth actually means, which is ultimately the recognition that each and every one of us has our own subjective and personal truth within the grand scheme of the capital T truth, 
that giloy, that revelation of the various voices that emerge from within their difference to create a unity that is greater than some total of its parts, that can only come about in a world of Amad Shikra. And therefore, the book of the Zohar is not only an answer to the Malachim as to why we should create an individual, but rather the book of the Zohar is an answer to that truth claim. The book of the Zohar is a truth beyond truth. It's a truth that is so true that it no longer needs to be true because each and every Tana has their own particular interpretation of a Pasuk and they can be in opposition to one another. They can represent polar opposites in terms of spiritual dynamics as well as psychological spiritual experience in this world. And in the end of the day, both remain true because they came from places of truth. That is the secret of the Zohar. We don't need a neat version of truth. We don't need a very clear and succinct answer to problems. We can learn to live with the problems themselves. We can learn to live at nighttime. We can learn to serve God and cultivate spiritual creativity specifically as the sun sets, specifically in the absence of the clarity that emerges from the clarity of the sun that bright light of the intellect that shines itself over all confusion and doubts. And instead, the light of the Zohar is a light of reflection. It's a reflective text. It's a text that doesn't contain any light of its own, but rather it is the sum total of the voices and the echoes that cross over one another in the path towards truth. And with this, we can begin to understand certain teachings that certain Sadiqim had to say about the value of the Zohar HaKadosh. Now we've spoken about already how the Zohar needed to be revealed specifically in a time of concealment and the generation of Hod, in that place of gratitude, which is predicated upon the absence of the giver of the gift. Because if the giver of the gift, if HaKadosh Baruch Hu is present and clear as day in our lives, then there's no capacity for gratitude. My thanks are nullified in the bright light of the giver of the gift. It's only in the absence of the giver of the gift. It's only when the Balhamatana removes himself from the scene, where we no longer know where the gift is coming from, that gratitude becomes a possibility. It's only valuable to admit and to submit myself and to say thank you in acknowledgement of the fact that there was a limitation that I could not complete on my own without the intervention of somebody else. It's only valuable to express such a sentiment when that person who had given me the gift is no longer in front of me at the present moment. That light of gratitude, that light of hod in which the Zohar HaKadosh was revealed is a light that is predicated on a certain form of absence, which is why the Zohar was revealed in such a time. We have statements and one tzaddik that we're going to be looking at. There are many tzaddikim who were intoxicated with the light of the Zohar. As we've spoken about the Baal HaSulam, the tzaddikim of Ishbitz and Radzin, Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver, the Masuk Midvash, Rav Daniel Frisch, someone we're going to encounter in our Shirim, Rav Hillel Zeitlin, Rav Froman. But the tzaddik we're going to look at tonight is going to be Rav Pinchas Karatzer, Sklusi Yoganalenu, who I, I have, in, in the name of my grandfather, Rav Yisrael Rosenfeld, Sklusi Yoganalenu, the, the, the legend of the family is that we're Miyuchas to Rav Pinchas Karatzer, that we have a direct lineage associated with the light of Rav Pinchas Karatzer. And the fact that it comes from my grandfather is more than enough of a truth claim to that. So learning these teachings is of utmost significance to me. We'll just look at a few of the sentiments that Rav Pinchas Karitz are expressed with regards to the Zohar. And the grand theme that emerges out of them is going to lead us to the next shlav in our conversation. Rav Pinchas says as follows. HaZohar metchadesh b'chol yoyim acher that every single day there is a renewed interpretation of what the Zohar is trying to say to us. Now, this is already brought down by the Toldos Yaakov Yosef in the name of the Baal Shem Tov. And in truth, it's brought down by the Arizal in the beginning of Eitz Chaim, that each and every moment, each and every hour has tough, tough reish pei rigaim, has 1,080 moments in it. And those tough, tough reish pei rigaim correspond to tough, tough reish pei forms of breath, 1,080 ways of breathing in each and every moment. 
different ways of engaging with the vitality of HaKadosh Baruch Hu as it descends into this world. Again, highlighting the notion that the only perpetuality in religious or spiritual life is the perpetuality of change, that one needs to be changing every moment. That the moment I do tshuva, I have to then go ahead and do tshuva on my tshuva, because the level that I was standing at yesterday, when I retroactively look at it, I come to realize that it was lacking in relationship to where I am today, and I have to move forward. And how every ceiling is in truth the floor of a level above it, and vice versa ad infinitum. That the perpetuality of change and the shifting way that a Jew is supposed to serve God in this world, the Arizal himself says that this applies to the Zohar as well. That every moment, every hour, every minute, every day of a person's life brings a new parish, a new interpretation of what the Zohar is trying to say to a person. Now, if we were dealing with a text that was meant to be conveying a static truth, this would be a very difficult sentiment. Because how in the world am I supposed to uncover a truth that is ever-changing? Truth is something static. Truth is seemingly something that I can measure and weigh in a very strict and measurable form. But to find the truth that is perpetually changing and shape-shifting and merging with itself over and over, recreating itself in different formulations and permutations, that seems to be the epitome of falsehood, something that is not lasting, something that is not standing. Yet nevertheless, we're told by Rav Pinchas Karzer, by the Ariza, by the Tzadikim, that the interpretation of the Zohar Akadosh changes as every moment changes. And what I would like to try and say is that this is Gufa, that itself is the truth of the Zohar Akadosh. The truth of the Zohar is that there is no static essential truth to the Zohar. The only requirement that a person needs is limud lishma, an honesty when engaging with the text, an nullification of the self in front of the oceanic nature of this infinite text, a willingness to encounter the author of this text within the text, which is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, for the sake of connecting to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And as long as we have those prerequisites, then any limud that we have in the Zohar, any interpretation, whether it's clear or not clear or hypothetical or absolute, is all part and parcel of that truth of the Zohar, of that truth that is beyond truth, that truth with it, which allows us to live with questions. Rav Pinchas Karatzer continues and he says, Zohar. Ubir Huzal, so Pinchas Karzer says, I find no relief in this world unless I'm praying or learning the Zohar. And Rav Pinchas Karzer continues to explain why that is. He says, because in truth, everything in the world is stuck within this continuum, this shape-shifting space where things move from a malach to a shade, from a malach to a shade, from an angel to a demon, from an angel to a demon, from Yetzir Tov to the Yetzir Hara, from the negative impulse within myself and the positive impulse, from a positive outlook of affirmation towards a negative outlook of negation. We straddle both sides because everything comes from the eight tzadas toivara. Everything in this world is sullied, polluted on a certain level, so nothing can be seen as absolute. And a person has a pain from these rapid, ever-changing transitions that take place in every moment. But the Zohar HaKadosh itself is from the tree of life, which means that all of those changes do not create pain. That by the tree of life, it's not shot that the tree of knowledge is this ever-changing, shape-shifting space of falsehood and truth, falsehood and truth, light and dark, light and dark, and that the Eitzhadas, or that the Eitzhachayim is static. But in truth, the Eitzhachayim is also ever-shifting, except that the level of the Eitzhachayim, that ever-shifting nature, does not cause pain, because we're aware of the fact that things are fluid and that things are not answerable at every moment. The Eitzachayim, partaking of the Eitzachayim, partaking of the Zohar, is not engaging with an absolute singular truth without any distortion or distinction, but it's engaging in a world of distortion and distinction, but recognizing that every distortion and distinction is just another iteration of the grand totality of the infinitude of truth, of that emes, which is the name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We're told by our tzaddik and by the Ishbitzer, by the Leshem Shweb by the Arizal, based on the Zayar Kaddush, the Ramami Panel brings it down as well. We've spoken about this before, that La Asid Lavo, we're going to come to understand 
that in truth there was only one tree at the center of Gan Eden. The Pasuk tells us the Eitz Hadas as well as the Eitz Hachayim And the Ishbitzer Tzadikim and already the Balei Tosvos in the Das Sakanim bring the question down, how could you have multiple elements within a center? A center is a singular concept. It's the center point that holds everything together. And what the tzaddikim teach us is that in truth, the Eitzadas Toivera and the Eitzachayim, the tree of knowledge of duality and the singularity of the tree of life are in truth, two expressions of the very same entity. That in a mindset of Geula, the Eitzadas, that distortion and disparity, that polyphonic form of different voices and arguments against one another and different claims in its state of separation. So that becomes the source of pain because a Jew demands truth and singularity and unity in this world. But from the perspective of the Eitzachayim, if we're able to trace the roots of the Eitzhadas back to where it truly comes from, we come to realize that in truth, the Eitzhadas is the Eitzachayim. And all of these multivaried forms of expression and the different ideas and the different feelings and pathways of spirituality and souls and experiences in this world, all of them are part and parcel of the singular display of the multifarious infinitude of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's light. That the Eitz Adas tells us that in truth, the unity that we demand is singular without shape, without change and without color. The Yitzhakayim teaches us, no, truth is born out of distinction. And difference is not in opposition to unity, but rather difference gives birth to unity. As Rabbi Nachman teaches us that the Iker is not to simply live in a world of Yichud, of Achdas HaPashat, of simple unity, but rather the Iker is to go into the Heichale HaTemuros, to enter into those chambers of changes, this transition back and forth, feeling different at every moment, from one moment to the next, and to bring all of those changing colors, the chamber of changing hues, Heichal HaGvanim HaMishtanim, the changing colors of human experience, which changes from moment to moment, and to allow those multivaried colors to give birth to a unity that is greater than the sum total of its parts. So Rav Pinchas Karitzer is understanding and teaching us that the only Nachas Ruach that I have in this world is when I'm able to see all of the difference and all of the distortion and all of the separation and to recognize that it's giving birth to a truth that is greater than itself. And that's what emerges out of the light of the Zohar. Rav Pinchas continues and he says, Amar Li, he said to his student, Person should learn a lot of Zohar. Why? Because in relationship to the darkness of exile, a person needs a requisite amount of light. The medicine needs to be as strong as the sickness. And it's not enough to learn anything else. Even if a person devotes a strong amount of time to other forms of learning, a person still needs to ensure that they're learning the requisite amount of the Zohar. And this is explained in the Zohar when Rashbi says, that the Zohar has the strength to protect us in the generation of Mashiach. In the generation prior to Mashiach, when brazenness and falsehood is abound, it's everywhere. And the regular things that we would place our trust in, those systems of power, those systems of truth that we used to believe in, they're broken down, they're shattered, they're cracked, they fall apart, and we're left stuck within the rubble of it. And Zakhtar of Pinchas Karitzer, the only way to survive such a darkness is by grabbing hold of the light of the Zohar HaKadosh. Because again, it's not that the Zohar HaKadosh is a unified text that dispels all darkness, but the Zohar is the text that teaches us how to be metapel with darkness. The Zohar teaches us how nighttime is a prerequisite for revelation, how brokenness is a prerequisite for building, how darkness is a prerequisite for revelation. So the Zohar protecting us in Golos is not that it pretends that all difficulty is gone and that everything is a singular truth. Rather, the Zohar protects us by teaching us how to be mitmodeid, how to face it, how to grapple with falsehood, how to grapple with the difference of opinion and falsehood and claims and untruth and all of the confusion that we go through. The Zohar teaches us how to make room for it. The Zohar teaches us how to live with shalom. 
It teaches us how to make space for all of the different parts of ourselves at the very same moment. Because you can have 10 different voices interpreting a Pasuk at the same moment and everyone's in disagreement and everyone's in agreement at the very same time. Rav Pinchas continues and he says, Amar, he said, How difficult is this exile? It's a statement that doesn't need explanation. We all know how difficult the exile is. Rav Pinchas says, how difficult is this galus? How schwer is this existential vacuum that we find ourselves in? Yet, I have no rest. I have no nachas ruach unless I'm learning Zohar. Again, highlighting for us the revelation that when the water reaches our necks, when things get so difficult, when the nighttime overcomes the sunlight of the day and the clarity of the mind, instead of running away from darkness and trying to find light and forcing light into the darkness, the Zohar teaches us a new path. It teaches us how to look at the darkness, how to walk in the darkness, how to look around and look at the trees and allow ourselves to listen to those frightening sounds for just a little bit longer than we're comfortable with, when suddenly those sounds of the birds and the sounds of the trees transform themselves into the song of the world into the fact that everything, without any yotzim and aklal, bespeaks the glory of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The rocks, the mountains, the strangers, the donkeys, the animals, all of these become messengers of Torah secrets in the Zohar. In Torah Shabbat Pan, the Gemara, you don't see this so much. You don't see how that which is outside of the base Medrash can inform our spiritual life how that which is outside of the realm of truth can be the measure by which we serve God. But in the Zohar, in the book of the outside, we learn how to breathe with the outside winds. It's not a steady breathing. It's a haphazard breathing sometimes. It's a wandering. It's a not knowing where I'm going, but it's also a willingness to find myself where I am, to walk, to be on the path without any known destination. Lastly, Rav Pincha says as follows, Omar, he said, Every day I feel the need to be grateful and to express my praise to Hashem. For he has created us in a time, in a time period when the Zohar is revealed in the world. And not in those years, like we spoke about last week, when the Zohar was not revealed. Because the Zohar, the book of the Zohar, has brought me to the world to come. And Rav Pinchas goes on even further and he says, That the Zohar is what has kept me a Jew. This is a statement from Rav Pinchas Karitz or one of the biggest tzaddikim, the Tamidim of the Bashem Tavakadosh. The Zohar is what kept me a Jew. The Zohar is what enabled me to survive darkness of exile because the Zohar is what has taught me to live with darkness, not to run away from darkness, but to allow darkness and concealment to become the very vessel or the very site wherein the light of Torah is revealed. Now, the Zohar is written in a language that seems to be inappropriate for the Zohar to be written in. We know that Lashon HaKodesh, that the Hebrew language, is meant to represent the ubersprach, the essential language through which God spoke creation into being, so to speak. Nobody explains this as clearly as the Balhatanya Skusi Yaganalenu, Rav Shner Zaman of Liadi, the Admar Hazakain, in the third volume of Tanya, which is Shari Hayichud Ve'amuna, based on the teachings of his Rebbe, the Magad of Mezrich, based on the teachings of his Rebbe, the Baal Shem Tavakadosh, and this is clear in the writings of the Arizal as well, especially in the writings of Rav Yisrael Sarug and the worlds of the Malbush. It's clear in the Sefer Yitzira that the world is created through the Lashon HaKodesh, from the building blocks, the very basic DNA of existence is the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, of the Aleph Beis. And Lashon HaKodesh represents the thing in itself. Famously, the Balatanya points out, if a par, a cow, is a par, in truth, its spiritual DNA is the os pei and the os resh. That if we contemplate physical matter and mundane existence enough, 
what we will come to find is that in truth, physical matter can be annihilated and transformed into an apprehension of spirituality, whereby we encounter the spiritual energy sources, those letters, those particular signs that represent spiritual points of influx that give life to these physical entities. That a shulchan is not really a shulchan, a table is not a table, but rather it's a shin, a vav, a lamad, a ches, and a nun. And that if we contemplate enough, we can come to find that everything is alephs and bays and gimel and dalid, and everything is comprised of this spiritual insight. Which is why there are different halachos when it comes to Lashon HaKodesh. A swear made in Lashon HaKodesh is considered as binding, even if a swear made in a mundane language, in a fallen language, is not binding. Because a fallen language is simply an acquiesced language. It's one that people have agreed upon. It's based on the instrumental form of it. It works. So this word, a chair means a chair and a table means a table. But in Lashon HaKodesh, it's not simply that we've agreed that Shulchan means Shulchan, but rather the Shulchan is comprised of that spiritual energy of the Shin, Vav, Lam, and Ches, and Nun. This is something that we saw very clearly in the Shirim of Rav Kook on Reish Milin. Lashon HaKodesh represents Panim. To behold something in this world, to encounter something as it truly is on its spiritual level, is to encounter something in a face-to-face type of way is to have a full comprehension of it. When I see the face of another, what I am encountering is the full totality of their expression. The panim represents the bifnim. The face reveals to me that which is internal. It reveals to me that which rests under the core of that person. And when I encounter things by way of Lashon HaKodesh, I'm encountering things in their ideal state. I'm encountering the world as Hashem wanted it to be living in the ideals of things. But when I encounter things through translation, when I encounter things through Targum, through translation, it's the opposite. I'm no longer beholding the thing in itself. I'm no longer grasping the essence of what this thing is comprised of or what makes this thing, but I'm grappling in the darkness for some sort of comprehension when my rational or intellectual properties have failed me. I can't understand the thing in itself. I'm not worthy of beholding that thing in a face-to-face encounter. I'm caught up in all forms of confusion and babbling that prevents me from having a direct encounter with anything in this world. Everything is seen through the veil of my consciousness. Everything is transmitted and translated through the interpretation and the conjecture of my own heart. A person has given up on the direct face-to-face encounter. We can no longer behold the world through Lashon HaKodesh. So we try and behold the world through Targum, through translation, through Achorayim, from a back-to-back type of relationship, where things are no longer seen through an Aspaklarya de Meira, where things are no longer perceived through a lens that is clear, where I know exactly what I'm looking at, but rather things are beheld through an Aspaklarya de Loinuhura, from a non-clarified lens where everything I see, I'm forced to question whether what I see is authentic or whether what I see is simply the conjecture and the creation of my own mind. In the world of Targum, we stumble around in the dark. We don't know what is what, we don't know what is up, we don't know what is down. We are simply trying to recreate meaning from within the destruction of meaning. If Lashon HaKodesh represents what the Arizal refers to as a, a direct light, as an oryashar that descends from on high to below, where things become clear, and then eventually they descend down into a person's mind, starting with clarity, ending with human comprehension, targum or translation is an opposite direction. Targum and translation operate from the bottom, de- from the bottom up. It's a returning light. It's an orchoser. It's something that we refer to as a backwards light almost like the mirror image that we see where things are reversed. Here, I'm working back from the bottom and trying to discern what took place at the origin. I don't have any grasp of anything clear. I don't have any grasp of an authentic origin. I'm stuck in the afterthought. I'm stuck in the shattered vestiges of truth, trying to make sense of what was once here. I'm trying to sift through the broken shards of existence to uncover what was once whole. And by translating to myself the signs and the images that I see, I slowly, slowly, but surely piece back together the information 
according to my own understanding so that I can return one day back to the original thought in its pristine form. Targum represents a secondary form of human consciousness, always already after a beginning that I can no longer grasp, always already after some cataclysm or fall. I no longer have direct access to the true nature of things. I'm stuck wandering around. This is the mitzvah of Shnayim Mikra V'yachat Targum. In Shnayim Mikra V'yachat Targum, what we're compelled to do, as the Arizal points out, as the Vilnagon points out, as Rabbi Nachman points out in Torah 19, which speaks so powerfully about the nature of translation, Shnayim Mikra V'yachat Targum is more than simply a practical mitzvah that a person engages with throughout the week preparing for Shabbos. Shnayim Mikra V'yachatargum is representative of the way that we encounter everything in our lives. Shnayim Mikra V'yachatargum points to the fact that we experience things both by way of Mikra through Lashon HaKodesh in a direct way, face-to-face, grasping the thing in and of itself, having a direct awareness of what we need to be doing. And then there's going to be moments of Targum, which is confusion and a back-to-back relationship where we no longer know what the truth is. And we're stuck trying to infer the truth from within confusion. And the reason we read the Sukkim twice in Lashon HaKodesh is the aspirational effort to try and ensure that our lives have more Lashon HaKodesh, have more face-to-face encounter than they do confusion. But the inclusion of Targum into the Shnaya Mikra is the recognition that no matter how far we come in our rational awareness of things, we will always ultimately still be stuck in the process of translation. Human beings are incapable of grasping the thing in itself. We have fallen away from the source. We have found ourselves stuck within the confines of the muck and the darkness and the confusion, stuck within the world of hate, of mistakes, of chasronos, of lacks and deficiencies and desires. But it's specifically from within that place of Targum that the Balchuva emerges. It's specifically from within that place of translation that we get to uncover and create our own point of the Torah. And as we're going to see, this is part of why the Zohar is written in Lashon HaTargum, because like we said, the book of the Zohar is a book that celebrates the human condition. It's the book that the Malachim can't understand, because Malachim don't fail. Malachim don't falter. Malachim understand things on a Lashon HaKodesh type of level. They're aware of exactly what Hashem is telling them to do. They're aware of why they're doing what they do, and they know exactly what they need to do. Lashon HaTargum, we're told, in the Zohar, that the Malachim, those celestial forces, have no need for Lashon Targum. They have no need for translation. The Ramak tells us in his introduction to his parish on the Zohar, or Yakar, that we can infer from this statement that the Malachim are enam nizkakim lilashon targum. It's not that they don't understand the language of translation. It's that they see no utility to it. They see no need for it. And what the Ramak says, and this is something that we spoke about in the first year, is that it's not that the Malachim don't understand. They understand very well. They're just disgusted by it. When they see somebody speaking in Lashon Targum, their assumption is that this person is speaking about base human matters, that this person is discussing failure and struggle and difficulty. And the Malachim have absolutely no interest in listening to any conversation in that language. And the reason that the Sefer HaZohar is written in Targum is to seduce the Malachim to come down and listen because they're stuck in a state of ambiguity now. On the one hand, they're disgusted by the abject nature of Targum and all that it represents. On the other hand, they want to hear the secrets of Torah. And as they draw closer to listen to Rashbi and his Chavraya darshaning the secrets of the Zohar in Lashon Targum, what they're going to be forced to acknowledge is that in truth, human beings are stronger than us. In truth, they should be created. Yes, maybe they can't live up to the ideal of MS that we demand, but perhaps the breaking of that ideal of MS and the allowance for different opinions and different voices merging together is on a certain level greater than our MS. That's what the Ramak tells us. Rabbi Nachman, aside from his remarkable teaching in Torah Yud Tess about Targum, which we've discussed in previous shirim, and we'll touch upon tonight as well, 
Rabbi Nachman writes in Sicha Saran that what Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai did by writing the Lashon, the Sefer Azor, Lashon Hatargum, is that he was Metakein Lashon Hatargum, that he transformed the Lashon of Targum completely to be revealed for what it truly is, which is the process of tshuva. Targum is the process of elevating those fallen sparks of misinformation back up to a place of our own understanding. Lashon HaKodesh represents the tzaddik. It represents the person who has never failed, never wandered, never struggled. It's a person who lives with the sunlight of day shining on them at every moment. But when a person falls away from that, and when the sun sets and a person falls into that frightening, anxiety-producing space of dusk, in the darkness and the confusion of the nighttime, a person finds themselves stuck in the loss of language. I can't speak anymore. I've lost the ability to speak. I can't open my mouth. I can't speak. I just knock at this point because I can't speak due to the heaviness and the burden of my sins and my transgressions. But it's specifically in that place of speechlessness and that death of language, as the Arizal points out so clearly by the Kavanos of Chag HaPesach, how Gullus of Mitzrayim was in truth a Gullus of Dibor. It was an exile of speech where a person could no longer convey what was truly at the heart of their experience to another person, thereby leading to that anxiety that exists in the heart of the individual, no matter what I try and say. It's specifically from within that space that the light of Targum emerges. Yes, I may have lost my capacity to encounter the Panim El Panim of Lashon HaKodesh, but I have gained and I have uncovered the possibility of encountering that back-to-back -back type of relationship by way of a distance with HaKadosh Baruch Hu through my own translation. Until now, we've been talking about how translation represents a secondary mode of processing information, something that is post the fall, something that is a result of a transgressive fall into the pits of misunderstanding, of confusion. What we're going to show now is we're going to try and hint to the fact that in truth, while Lashon HaKodesh and the face-to-face -face relationship is certainly of a loftier level, nevertheless, there is a benefit, a spiritual benefit that emerges for a person in the process of translation that specifically seeps out of the Zohar itself. Because one of the things about translation, as many Jewish thinkers as well as Sadiqim have pointed out, is its inevitable failure. That perfect translation is an impossibility because the task of the translator is to try as hard as they may to create a copy or a replication of an original that is no longer present. And even if I perfect the mirror image of that which was created originally, it will still be a secondary creation and not the original expression of the idea. So even a perfect translation is a failed translation because translation is always already a process that contains within itself a kernel of misunderstanding. Because if I could understand the thing perfectly, there would be no need for translation. The need for translation only begins when we take into consideration the fact that there are those who are incapable of beholding the text in itself or the idea in itself. And no matter how perfect I try and create a translation, ultimately there will always be even the most minimal gap that exists between the original perfect language and the fallen secondary language of translation. This is what we mean when we say that Targum is Achorayim. It's a state of slumber. It's a state of the absence of consciousness. Chazal tell us, the Arizal points out in the Beis Yaakov and the Tzadikim of Ishbitz have so much to say on this. But when we encounter Avram Avinu, and we encounter the bris ben habasarim, we see that there's an emachashecha, a great fear and a darkness that descends upon Avraham. And a tardema no alav, he falls into a deep state of slumber, a deep state of unconsciousness, not unlike the unconsciousness that Adam Harishon fell into, as we're going to see. And surprisingly, or not surprisingly, what the Arizal and our tzaddikim point out, is that the numerical value of the word tardema, of deep slumber, is the same numerical value as the word targum, as the word translation, thereby equating on an ontological level the phenomenon of a deep unconscious slumber and the work of translation. And the notion is that when I am awake, 
when I am facing the world with open eyes, I can see that which is in front of me. I can see that which I need to see, and I can know that which I need to know with absolute clarity, with the intellect of the eye. But when a person is overwhelmed by the world, when a person is overwhelmed by what their eyes see, and a person loses sight of the essential point and they fall into confusion and they fall into that state of terdema gedola, of a big, deep slumber that falls upon the person, of that ayef viagea, I'm tired and I'm worn out. That slumber that a person falls into at the end of a day when things have been difficult, that's a time of targum. That's a time of trying to translate my experiences and try to uncover the light of HaKadosh Baruch Hu that exists underneath all of the concealment. When I am asleep, I dream. Dreams are referred to as a mechzelayla. A mechzelayla, a vision of the night, is an unclarified vision. It's a vision that the Zohar HaKadosh makes very clear is always already tied up as an admixture of truth and non-truth. Chazal point this out already explicitly in the ninth parak of Brachos, that dreams are representative of the fact that things can be not true and true at once, that they can be essential and inessential at once, that they can be valuable and meaningless at once, that they can be real and unreal at once. But the dream is not fake as a result of the unrealness or the falsehood that exists within it, but rather it is an entity of falsehood that we're meant to engage with. And it gives us the opportunity to interpret it the way we would like. Rav Tzadak HaKoyen Melublin teaches us something incredible. He says that when a person is awake, what they're encountering is a state of meichen de godless, of revealed consciousness, of lofty consciousness, of godliness and the purpose in life. Katniss HaMoichin, or constricted consciousness, or lowered consciousness, is when we fall into smallness, we fall into pettiness, we fall into frustration, and anger, and hunger, and desire, and craving, and all of the things that take us out of our lives, jealousy, and temptation, the desire for honor. That's Moichin the Katniss. And what Rav Tzadak HaKoyin Melablin says in Sidka Satzadik is that the Chalom, the dream, is in truth the Roishem of Moichin the Godless that exists and remains within Moichin the Katnus. It's the memory, it's the irreducible trace of expanded consciousness, of faith, of hope that exists even after expanded consciousness has departed. It is the irreducible streak of hope that remains within us at every point, no matter where we're at, no matter what our minds are thinking about. That's the power of a dream. The power of a dream is there to remind us that Ani er, I am asleep, I am in slumber, but my heart is awake. And my emotions are pulsating within me, creating images amongst images with falsehood and lies and truth intermingled together. And when I awake, it's my job to interpret that dream as I would like. It's the gift of interpretation. It's the hermeneutical gift. It's why when we daven, we daven the yudgim omido shator and address us by him that the 13 hermeneutical principles of interpretation, the way we interpret texts, the way we process information becomes part and parcel of the tefillah service. Because when we awake from our slumber and we come to find that within the confusion there's a kernel of truth, that's our job to then interpret it and uncover our point in the Torah. So yes, the Zohar HaKadosh is written in Targum. Yes, the Zohar HaKadosh is written in a form of translation and slumber and unconsciousness but it's the light of unconsciousness. It's the light that exists within unconsciousness. It's the light of the nighttime. It's the light of confusion. It's the light of wandering. It's the light that the malachim are so disgusted by that they don't want to have anything to do with it. It's the light of being human. It's the light of needing gullus to understand what gula is. It's the light of ever-changing colors where I'm a different person from one moment to the next. That's why the Zohar is written in Aramaic. It's not some failure of the Zohar, but rather the exact purpose of the Zohar, to illuminate that space. We can understand the Maharal says something incredible in Teferis Yisrael when discussing the nature of Shnayim Mikra Targum, that yes, obviously Lashon HaKodesh and the face-to-face -face encounter with godliness in this world is of a loftier level than the translational space wherein a person encounters confusion, but there is a point where a person can understand that Targum is of a loftier status than Lashon HaKodesh. That translation is of a higher level because translation reminds me that I can never know anything absolutely. In Lashon HaKodesh and the Gemara, when I'm fighting for answers, I can come to believe in a Gemar, in an ending, in Gamarti, I have finished everything. 
But as Rabbi Nachman teaches us, gamarti v'egmor, even after I have finished, I still need to finish because nothing is complete. Nothing is complete until Mashiach and things are still incomplete then. It's not an incompletion of deficiency, but rather an incompletion that emerges from just how profoundly large and perfect HaKadosh Baruch Hu is, to the point that his perfection and his largeness can never allow anything else to feel that it is complete. Because the moment I think that I've reached the apex of perfection is the moment that I'm serving Avodah my holiness is above your holiness, it's loftier than your holiness, and therefore the human being will always be imperfect. Lashon HaKodesh runs the risk of making us feel that we may have grasped perfection, that we may have understood things deeply. Targum allows us to remember that I still haven't fully grasped things. And that's why the Zohar is written in Lashon, in, in Lashon Targum. Listen to the words of Rav Kook, this is Baruch Hashem Reish Milin, which we haven't looked at in some time. And this is the sixth footnote of six footnotes that Rav Kook writes on Reish Milin. And famously, Os Aleph is the translation, Aluf or Ulpan is the translation of Limud. It's the translation of learning. And that's what Rav Kook is coming to understand. Why is the Aleph, the beginning, not the word learning itself, but rather the translation of learning? Why is it not grasping information on a face-to-face -face level, but always already a back-to-back -back grasp of information? And Rav Kook says as follows, The active phrase of Aleph, of Ulpan, which comes to mean learning something or studying something, it's brought down in Kisve HaKodesh, it's found in Tanakh. Nevertheless, Miyasoid HaArami Huba, it comes from that site of translation. Why? Because in truth, Aleph, that translation of learning, represents learning that is encountered by receiving insight from somebody else. And anytime we learn something, anytime we hear an idea, it's always already considered the backs of a, backside of an idea because we're receiving it. We're not encountering it in its supernal authentic form, but it's always already removed one step from the essence of itself. And those who sought out traces of insight taught, that translation is the same numerical value as slumber meaning to say that the revelation of insight on this level is the revelation of insight that awakens us from within our sleep. Ani yeshena velibi er. I am asleep, but my heart is awake. Sha'az The essence of my mind that panim lepanim, lashon hakodesh, full and total grasp, is not revealed, but rather the hitlamdut ha'ulpanit always already a receptivity, an awareness of my inability to know things with absolute certainty. And with regards and relationship to that essential point of origin, which ever exists beyond our grasp, because the higher we go, the higher it goes. In relationship to the essential truth, which is ungraspable, every form of information or insight or grasp or knowledge or language that we have in this world is considered as being by way of translation because we don't have access to the original light. And the recognition that we're stuck within the space of translation, of trying to move from the bottom back up, from concealment into light, from dream states into consciousness, from struggle into clarity, that is reserved for the future. When we come to a point where we can say that the entire world will speak the language of Lashon HaKodesh, when everything is revealed to us. Rav Tzaduk HaKohen Lublin is one of the few tzaddikim who take this issue head on, this nature of Lashon HaTargum head on. And he says as follows, and this is in Maimur Zion in Sefer Kedusha Shabbos. He says that in truth, 
Chazal tell us already that Adam Arishon was speaking translation. That Adam Arishon spoke translation when he says the word of Li Mayakru El. What's going to be for me? Where's my beauty going to come from? And that word Yakar, that word Yakar representative of beauty is a translated word. It's an Aramaic word. And from here, Chazal teach us in Sanhedrin on 38b that Adam Harishon spoke in Aramaic. What does this mean for us? Adam Harishon, even though he was created in a form of perfection, nevertheless, human perfection is never fully perfect because human perfection is the acknowledgement of imperfection. Adam Arishon was capable of understanding that he could not absolutely grasp the essence of what HaKadosh Baruch was telling him. And therefore his avoda was the avoda of Targum, which goes to show us that even prior to the loss of language, we were stuck in translation, we were lost in translation. But Rav Tzadik HaKoyen Miloblin continues and he says that Torah the Mishnah, that could be written in Lashon HaKodesh because we're fully aware that we have no grasp of those things. But the Lashon HaZohar, the Lashon HaZohar is written in Aramaic, why? To remind us that no matter how high we climb the rungs of spirituality, we will always be stuck within not knowing. We will always be wandering in the dark. We will always be walking around those words searching for interpretation. And that's where the light comes from. The light of the Zohar is the light of translation. The light of the Zohar is developing our own humble understanding of this text. It's not a text of understanding. It's a text that forces us into ourselves to recreate our knowledge, to acknowledge the fact that I am not a Malach. I am someone who walks. I am not someone who stands. I am someone who struggles. I am not someone who has no struggle. It's the book of Malchus. It's the book of depravity. It's the book of, not depravity, it's the book of emptiness, of poverty, of impoverishment. And it's specifically in that place that the human being, the Jewish person, is capable of uncovering the untold vistas of personal meaning. To be metargame to ourselves, to translate the light of HaKadosh Baruch Hu to ourselves, and to realize that at best what we're doing is interpreting, we're translating. And yes, we're striving to reach the apex, but nevertheless, the process is the goal. In Torah Shabbat when the words are revealed clearly to us, the Moshe Nakodesh reigns supreme because there it's about knowledge. It's about knowing something. The book of the Zohar, on the other hand, is about not knowing. It's meant to fill us with mystery. It's meant to awaken within us the recognition that no matter how high I climb, I still have to walk more. I have to create new meaning for myself in every moment, and that's where the light is going to shine from. And Be'ezrus Hashem, with that, we can understand what Rabbi Nachman means when he says that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was metahir, the Lashon of Targum. The other thing that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai teaches us about in the Zohar that's specifically said in Targum is Kaddish, Yiskadav Yiskadash Mirabah, the ability to recognize the light of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, not in light, but rather the light of a Kaddish Baruch Hu that emerges from within death itself. That gift of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that Moshe Rabbeinu had to steal from the Malach Hamavas. That's what this book is. The book of the Zohar is the explanation of how Chazal can say, Tov, Zeyetzer HaTov, good, this is the positive inclination. Tov Ma'od, this is the Yetzer this is the negative inclination. Or Tov, this is Chaim, life is good. Tov Ma'od, this is death. Without the Zohar Kadush, we can't even begin to try and understand such a statement. But the Zohar allows us to delve deep and descend into the depths and the Tahom, the abyss of misunderstanding, for realizing that it's specifically within confusion and misunderstanding that we have the capacity to rebuild meaning for ourselves, to encounter the targum of the text, to look at the text not as a clear daytime book that demands answers and clarity, but rather the book of a dream. The Zohar Kadosh is a dream. It's one long dream that is open to the interpretation of the interpreter of the dream. And a person can interpret one pasuk to mean one thing, and the other person could come along and say that this pasuk means something entirely different, and both are true because it's a chalom, it's a hayinu kechomim, it's the light of Mashiach Tzidkenu, Baha'i Safri Yafkin Megalusa, will come to realize through the Zohar that, oh my goodness, I'm still dreaming. I'm still dreaming, it's not over yet. It's not over yet. There's still room for truth to emerge. There's still room for my own interpretation of things to give light. Be'ezus Hashem, with this, for the next year, we're going to be prepared to enter into the nature of the Chavraya Kadisha, the friendship of the Zohar. Because as we're going to see, 
the Tikkun Zohar refers to Yakar, this beauty, Yakar Mezoilel, the ability to uncover light from within depravity, from within darkness. The Lashon is Yakar Mezilzusa Da'alma, that the Zohar Kadosh gives us the strength to uncover value and lasting ideas from within the cheapness of the world, from within the emptiness of the world. So that the study of the Zohar is an encounter with the cheapness and the brokenness and the abject nature of things, yet the demand to uncover meaning within it. And this is something that's very true with friendship as well. The Pasuk and Shirim tells us, friends who sit together in the garden listening to the voices of one another. Rabbi Nassan and Nimerov quotes from Zohar Kadosh that he says, Hayoshevet baganim, what does it mean to sit in the gardens? Ganim is meloshan gnus, that a garden is from the same language as a disgusting place. That what is a friend? A friend is someone who can sit with you, bezilzusa da'alma, in the cheapness of this world, begnusa da'alma, in the disgust of this world, and sit there and understand and be empathic and to create brotherhood or fraternity from within confusion itself. And Bezra Sashem, after discussing the Chavraya, we're then going to enter into the Gufa Zohar itself to understand how Rashbi wants us to understand his book. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Zusha. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.